If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University. University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Have you ever wondered why you have a brain? Let renowned neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett demystify that big gray blob between your ears. In seven short essays, plus a bite-sized story about how brains evolved, this slim, entertaining, An accessible collection reveals mind-expanding lessons from the front lines of neuroscience research. You'll learn where brains came from, how they're structured, and why it matters, and how yours works in tandem with other brains to create everything you experience. Along the way, you'll learn to dismiss popular myths such as the idea of a lizard brain, and the alleged battle between thoughts and emotions, or even better, nature and nurture, to determine your behavior. Sure to intrigue casual readers and scientific veterans alike, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain is full of surprises, humor, and important implications for human nature. Dr. Barrett is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. She also holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where she is chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. She is the author of two books, how Emotions Are Made, and more recently, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. In addition, Dr. Barrett has published over 260 peer-reviewed scientific papers appearing in Science, Nature, Neuroscience, and other top journals in psychology and cognitive neuroscience. She has also given two popular TED Talks, one of which has over 6.5 million views. For more information, please visit her website at lisafeldmanbarrett.com. 
Hello, everyone. This is Elizabeth Cronin, a host for the New Books Network. And today, I am thrilled to be talking with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett about her latest book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. So great to have you here. And I'm wondering if we could just jump in and start with you sharing with, with listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to be so interested in the brain and how you came to write these books. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, you know, I didn't start off being, well, actually, I mean, I was very, really, I was very interested in the brain and in physiology when I was an undergraduate, but I decided to actually do a PhD in psychology because I also loved psychology. And um, when I went to graduate school, I really wasn't studying the brain and I wasn't even studying emotion. I was studying something completely different. I was really interested in the self, people's beliefs about themselves, their self-concept, their identity, um, and how they dealt with evidence that they were not living up to their own standards or to their ideals for who they really wanted to be. So that was actually was really interested in. And as a consequence, I uh, had to measure a bunch of things, including emotions. And so I did what most graduate students do. I, I went to the literature. I found some skills. I'm going to ask people how they feel. And the studies kept failing to replicate. So, I, you know, in graduate school, you start off with a study that has already been published so you can make sure that you understand what you're doing. And then you go and you ask your own questions. And I never got past the demonstrate that you know what you're doing part because I, I just kept failing to replicate these studies. And at a certain point, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'm not cut out to be a scientist. And luckily, I was also training as a clinician, so clinical psychology. So I thought, well, okay, you know, I'll have a nice um, career as a, as a clinician. Um, and in a moment of despair, I, I kind of looked at these, I think I had run eight studies, which failed to replicate. And um, I realized that actually what was happening was that the measures, I was trying to measure how people felt, how, how, you know, their, their emotional experience. And I realized the measures actually weren't performing the way that they were supposed to. And I was replicating that over and over and over and over again. And I, so I thought, what's well, really interesting, you know, feeling sad, feeling fearful, feeling depressed, feeling anxious. Those are supposed to be very separate things. Anxiety and depression, very separate things, except that when people reported one, they reported the other. So if people reported being anxious, they reported being depressed. If they reported feeling fearful, or they would also report feeling sad. And I just thought that was really odd. And I thought, well, obviously, what's going on here is that people just aren't identifying their emotions well. And if I could just measure emotion objectively, I could measure someone's actual emotional state. And then I could also measure their identification of their emotional state. And then I could figure out, you know, who was accurate and who wasn't, and maybe even try to help people be more accurate. You know, I was training as a clinician. This seemed very interesting to me. And then what I slowly came to realize was that everything that I had been taught about emotion, really in my undergraduate education and also my graduate education was false because there is no objective way 
to measure someone's emotion, actually. You, there aren't facial sets of facial movements that reliably express, you know, smiles don't reliably express happiness, scowls don't reliably express um, uh, anger, um, and so on and so forth. And there's nothing that you can measure, you know, about someone's face, about someone's body, their heart rate, their, you know, body movements, there's really nothing that you can measure in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies that had been conducted. And so what, you know, I naively thought, oh, I'll just solve this little measurement problem with emotion and I'll go back to studying the self. And what ended up happening was I just had to keep retraining in new um, methods in order to properly test this hypothesis about um, whether or not you could ever objectively um, measure what emotional state someone was in separate from their self-report. And so I learned to be a physiologist and how to measure, you know, heart rate and respiration and all sorts of physical signals in the body. And I learned something about, um, you know, me measuring the face and facial muscle movements. And eventually, um, I learned about the brain. So, you know, Darwin claimed that there were facial expressions that were unique and very reliable indicators of um, of emotional states, and that's incorrect. The data do not just categorically do not support that view. I mean, there's really nothing in the literature that um, would support that view, with the exception of one set of studies, which use a method that teaches subjects what you want them to know by the end of the experiment, essentially. And then I, um, the same thing with physiology, you know, I, we, we, we've done meta analyses, we've, we've run our own experiments, we've um, basically looked at every experiment that was ever published, um, <laughs> to see, you know, whether um, there are reliable physical patterns in the body for anger and sadness and fear, and there aren't. And, um, and in every sort of domain that you look, you you just can't find reliable evidence when you sample studies broadly enough. And then, but everyone kept saying, oh, well, it's in the brain. It's in the brain. You're going to find it in the brain. You're going to find it in the brain. So I thought, all right, well, now I have to train to be a neuroscientist, which I did. Um, and you don't find it in the brain either. Um, there are no reliable biomarkers in the brain, you know, that generalize across people and instances and cultures and so on. It's just not there. And so that just left me with this really, really interesting um, dilemma, right? Like a paradox, really, which is that, okay, so there's no physical marker that or set of markers that can indicate when someone is angry or happy or sad or fearful or whatever. But yet we have very strong emotional feelings at times. And we they happen to us, they happen to us so automatically that we feel like we're being hijacked by them, really, um, which turns out, you know, not to be true. <laughs> also, um, that we don't have a lizard brain that gets hijacked, you know, that hijacks the rest of our brain. That's also turns out not to be uh, true. Um, and that also interested me. Like it turned out that as I was learning about neuroscience so that I could study emotions and what they are and how the brain is constructing them. I learned a lot about 
also myths in neuroscience that are perpetuated, one of which, you know, maybe the most popular myth after, you know, your left side is for uh, thinking and your right side is for feeling, which is also not true, um, is that, you know, you have a, a, a lizard brain encased by a, a limbic system and then your big, you know, cerebral cortex, which is for rationality, limbic system being for emotion and, you know, your reptile brain being for instincts, that's just also completely an, a myth. Like there's nothing in neuroanatomy or the functioning of uh, a human brain. And even in evolution, it's just incorrect. Actually, there's, you know, we didn't, mammals didn't evolve out of a common ancestor with reptiles. Um, that's, you know, we didn't evolve from reptiles, basically. The only animal that has a lizard brain is a, is a lizard. Um, and so I just got really, that, that just led me really to become interested in, well, how does your brain work actually? And how did your brain evolve? And what is a brain good for anyways? It's a very expensive, you know, uh, hunk of meat between your ears. So what's it good for? Um, why did it evolve in the first place? And, and so on and so forth. And I guess in the end, I'm just a really curious person. And that is combined with not taking anybody else's word for anything, right? Like I just, I'm not really good with authority. So somebody, if Darwin says something, well, yeah, maybe, or maybe not. We'll see. I mean, Darwin was, you know, brilliant about um, uh, understanding, you know, discovering issues about natural selection, but his ideas about emotion were really um, wrong. Yeah, it's so interesting because I, I love that about you, that that's your stance. And as somebody who's also got training as I'm also a clinical psychologist, but also has training in mindfulness meditation and teach that, that's one of the things I respect a lot about the teachings, the wisdom teachings of the Buddha is that he repeatedly would say, don't take my word for it. Don't, don't just, it's no blind faith is required. It's all about, you know, test this out for yourself. And it's only true if it's true for you. And I will say that, that my, um, you know, my stance with both of the books that I've written is really very explicitly, I'm not here to tell you anything. Like I'm not, I'm just here to share with you what the evidence is. You can make your own decisions, what you think, you know, I'm just arming you with, I'm translating what I understand to be the um, scientific evidence. And then you can make up your own mind because science doesn't work by authority. It's supposed to work by evidence. And the only evidence that we have is our experience of things. This is something philosophers have talked about for a really long time. It, you know, the only way we know the world is through the sensory surfaces of our own bodies. <laughs> the only way you know what is out there is by the signals that hit your retina and your cochlea and, you know, all the parts of your body um, and the insides of your body, the sensory surfaces inside your body. And, um, and so all we have is experience. And what science is, is experience under very controlled conditions or what we try to be to make very controlled conditions but in the end you have to decide you know what the experience what the observations are evidence of <laughs> and um you know i prefer it's not that i ignore people with expertise i just don't i i just need to 
figure it out for myself. And I usually read much more broadly than my colleagues, maybe. Um, I don't just read in the field that I'm uh, studying. I usually read much more broadly. And I find that's really helpful to sort things out. That's something I think you mention in one of the books, maybe it's seven and a half lessons about the brain, is that something that can, can perpetuate some of these myths is the fact that there are scientists working in silos. They're not communicating. And that, that for you, that reading broadly has helped you realize, wait a second, there's actually evidence in this other subset of science that is backing up what I'm discovering, but it's not being brought to yeah. attention. Exactly. And some of those silos are really, um, the walls are really thick. You know, you really need a lot of expertise in, um, in order to penetrate them. And I've been really, really fortunate and owe a lot um, of gratitude to, to many colleagues along the way who helped me breach the walls of various silos. And my, you know, I try to pay that forward to, 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 you know, explain to people who are, you know, in, in my house, we call civilians, which means a non-scientist, <laughs> you know, like my husband is a, is a computer uh, scientist. Um, but, you know, he's not a practicing scientist. He's really a software engineer. Um, and so, um, you know, he's a civilian. So he, you know, he's a good sounding board for me. Like if, um, if he tells me that something makes sense, I, I believe him. And if he tells me, you know, that's too jargony or that's for the 1% by which he means other scientists, um, you know, do I really need to know this? Does, does the average person really need to know this? You know, he's very, he's very helpful in that regard. The, the whole idea about some of the myths in science and um, some of the things that we take for granted um, affect the self, the person, because, you know, as you, you point out, we're kind of like taught certain things and our brain references our previous experience, but also our previous experience of acquiring knowledge or information, and that really affects us. So I just kind of want to make this real simple for a minute. And I think everyone's had the experience where somebody was smiling or they looked like they were having a good time, and then they later confide in you that they were miserable, right? It's like, I just feel like on some level, it people really dive into this book and, and seven and a half lessons is very short and easy. It's very easy to read. It'll start to, some of this will resonate. As you said, some of people are going to say, wait a second, this does make sense. I mean, there's, if you're really paying attention, there are many times when there is a disconnect from what you're seeing and what a person is describing or tells you later. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, the number of emails I've received over the last couple of years where people write and say, oh, I, I'm so grateful to, to know this, or I'm so grateful to learn this from you. This really resonates with my experience. Um, you know, it's been um, like an avalanche of emails. I'm 
I, I can't actually, I read every single one. I can't answer every single one, but I, I was surprised to be honest. Um, I thought I was going to have to work hard to make the case that, you know, you may feel confident in your ability to, in your quotes, you know, read somebody's face, but we never read facial movements the way we read words on a page. You even hear, I mean, even people refer to facial movements as facial expressions, as if they are expressing some inner state when in fact right. humans move their faces all the time um, to it, it indicates you're alive if a if a person doesn't move their face you notice and you think that's really weird so there are all these little movements that are occurring all the time and what your brain is doing as you so nicely said is it's guessing it's using past experiences to guess at the meaning of facial movements in a particular situation. And it turns out the guesses are influenced not only by your past experience, but also by the situation that you're in, the context that you're in. And part of the context that you're in is attached to you in your body. I mean, your body is a context for perceiving other people that you never can put down and you're completely unaware that it's influencing you. But in fact, it's influencing what you see, what you hear, what you smell, how you feel um, in very, very profound ways. But they're sort of under the, you know, under the radar. And once you realize it, it, it becomes and you start to look for it, actually, in your life, you can you, you really start to see it. And it, it really cultivates, I think curiosity instead of confidence, right? So, I mean, the evidence shows that people scowl about 30% of the time when they're angry. And that's above chance, right? That's, signif that's significantly different from what you'd expect by chance. That statistic gets you a really good paper in a peer-reviewed journal. But what it means is that 70% of the time, you have a false. You have a false negative because seventy percent of the time people are angry and they're not scowling. They're doing something else that's meaningful with their face. And also, people scowl about half. I should say it differently. Half the time people scowl, they're angry. But that means half the time that they scowl, they're not. They're confused. They're concentrating. Somebody just told them a bad joke. They have gas. You know, like they're they're, they're really indicating. Um, you know, uh, please don't come near me. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in social interaction. I mean, 50% of the time, somebody scowls for something other than anger, which means that's a 50% false positive rate. Like, would you want someone making judgments about your outcomes based on those kinds of statistics where they could be wrong so often? And it's not just scowling in anger. It's Every stereotype that we have, smiling and happiness, pouting and sadness, widening your eyes and gasping in fear, wrinkling your nose in disgust, they're all stereo Western stereotypes that don't necessarily even hold cross-culturally when we look at very, you know, people who live in very remote cultures where they have more limited access to um, Western cultural practices and norms. So that means that what you are really is a constantly an interpreter. You, the way to think about it is that you're, you know, your brain is telling itself stories all the time. It's, it's trying to make sense of the sensory signals that it's receiving. And ultimately, 
there is no physical signal in your body or in the world that, you know, has a inherent biological emotional meaning. There's, you know, you're the any signal becomes meaningful in 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 an ensemble of other signals. So when someone is scowling at you, you know, your brain has to make that meaningful, has to make a guess at and and so there's a whole ensemble of signals that your brain is using, some of which are actually in your brain. Just like when you scowl, that may mean uh, anger. It may be part of a construction of anger, but it also could be part of a construction of like concentrating or, you know, um, like I said, you know, <laughs> listening to a bad joke or or having gas or um, signaling, you know, um, uh, disapproval um, or or what have you. And similarly, what your brain is doing is it's marshalling you have you have like a repertoire of movements that you can make and your brain is basically sampling from that repertoire to um create an instance um in the present moment that fits the environment that you're in as well as it can that that's basically it so your brain is 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 sort of telling it's is making stories it's telling itself it's telling itself a story all the time about what things mean and what to do about them. And what about previous experience of like, I'm in a situation and someone is really upsetting me and I desperately want to yell at them. And I don't yell at them because it's my professor or my boss or something like that. And so this idea that you're having that experience, but the behavioral outcome or the physical, whatever someone's going to see won't be the same Whereas if I'm at home with my parents, I have no problem yelling at them. Sure. Does that fit with this? Absolutely. I mean, what what I think the the sort of the classical view of emotion would say is that um, you know, anger gets triggered and you have a prepotent sort of um urge to yell and maybe hit somebody and uh, you know, to be aggressive. Um, that you have these prepotent sort of urges that that are triggered by the anger circuit, and then you have to come in with other mechanisms to 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 dial them down, to suppress them, to to regulate them. But again, there what anger circuit? There is no anger. No one's ever been able to find an anger circuit. It doesn't matter whether they're looking just in a little subcortical part of your brain or they're looking across the whole brain. There is nothing reliable there. Meaning, not that there's no brain pattern, but there are many brain patterns for anger. And, you know, sometimes in anger, you do yell. And sometimes in anger, you uh, are stony-faced. And sometimes in anger, you cry. And sometimes in anger, you laugh. Sometimes in anger, you withdraw. Sometimes in anger, you approach. And it turns out that your brain um, is, the the brain signals are, are, are very strongly associated with what actions you take um, or which actions you're planning, your brain is planning to take in the next moment. This is something that's been known in the field of physiology since the 1970s. So if it's the case that you do many things in anger and you feel many things in anger, sometimes anger is pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, sometimes anger is 
very high in arousal. You know, your heart is racing. You're, and sometimes anger is your calm as your dead calm in anger, right? Sometimes your blood pressure goes up. Sometimes it goes down. It's not random. But what's happening is your brain is making choices without making itself aware of those choices. It's deciding what to do next. And as a consequence of deciding what to do next, it's constructing your experience in that moment. It's constructing the experience of the next moment. And the the point is that if there's more than one thing that you can do in anger that you've learned that to do in anger or that you've watched other people do in anger, that means that you there's going to be, and, and sometimes anger has pleasant features and sometimes unpleasant features and so on. It means that the brain patterns for anger, there isn't one, there's a whole repertoire. And so the idea that there could be a brain marker for anger is is sort of naive and overly simplistic because what you have is a repertoire, a population, as Darwin would have called it, a population of um, brain um, states for anger. And, you know, maybe that's predictable across people. We don't know because nobody studies it like that. Um, you know, maybe, Elizabeth, maybe you have 20 brain states for anger, and maybe I have, you know, 25, and maybe somebody else has 10, and maybe somebody else has none because they never learned the concept for anger in their culture or, or in their family or something. So we, that's what it looks like. That's what the evidence looks like to me. Um, but people still spend a lot of time and a lot of money looking for, you know, the golden egg, the, the one pattern that will let you objectively, um, you know, diagnose the presence of anger or whatever emotion category that you're interested in. So listening to you talk, I'm wondering about this and whether this is a myth or if there, this actually makes sense. This idea that, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's not a myth. That's not a myth. So, but that sort of speaks to, so that's that, this idea, maybe you can clarify, maybe you can just clarify that a little bit, because that's the idea people have is that something feels very automatic. Like, oh, well, there's nothing. hijacking. Yeah. Well, okay. So the thing is that um, I'm not saying that that there isn't times when the any when a brain is functioning like on autopilot so i mean well there it's always functioning on autopilot there's never a pilot <laughs> you have no <laughs> there's no little person in your brain like directing it right so but um what you just described is is called heavy in learning and what it means is is exactly what you said so when it's not exactly when they fire together it's when one fires before the other like in milliseconds but you know we're for us, it's fine to say, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. Now, neurons aren't literally wired together <laughs> with with wire, with axons, you know, they're, they're wired together with axons and chemicals and, and other, um, you know, yeah, basically, we can just call them chemicals. But um, it is true that, um, that if you encounter, so in any moment, you're encountering all kinds of sensory information. Um, 
coming through your eyes and your ears and your nose and your mouth and your skin and also sensory information always from your body making its way up to the brain all the time you know your brain's always regulating your body your body's always sending sense data back to your brain and so really even though you know right now you, you know our listeners are are listening to our voices so they're listening to they're getting acoustical um sounds and so on those sounds are you know exist in a statistical structure meaning if you've heard english before then you can your brain is going to automatically start predicting what's coming next um based on what they've just heard because they have years and years and years of statistical learning in english and if they could see us and um also um smell us and you know so on and so forth they would have a full complement of but instead they're smelling something else they're maybe looking at something else and so maybe the next time they hear your voice or my voice or our voices together they'll um remember what they were looking at what they were eating at the time what they were because that's how your brain works it's always encoding these patterns 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 and to encode a pattern, it means that the, the neurons are firing together um, concurrently. And so they strengthen their, the ease with which they talk to one another. And the thing is that, you know, you're always taking in sense data from the world and from your body continuously, continuously. But it's always in the presence of reconstructed, uh, reassembled memories from the past. That's how your brain is making sense of what's going on in your body and in the world. And I can say more about that in the moment, but the thing I'm trying to get to here is that your past is part of those Hebbian ensembles, meaning you're learning about what's going on around you and inside you, always in the context of what's happened before what you've experienced before, what you've learned before, what someone told you, that pat, the, pat, the present is conditional on the past. This is um, something that uh, the, the neuroscientist Gerald Edelman called the remembered present. Your present is always partly a construction of your past. What you experience right now is partly due to the signals around you and uh, also those inside you and some of the ones inside you come from your past so okay i want to go in two different directions with this um one let me just comment and say some might hear that and think oh gosh so how do you avoid being like a victim or a hostage to the past that's the first one and then the second thing i was going to say is um well, let me let me let you yeah so so one way to change who you are is to reach back into your past and change what happened to you. And that's kind of what we do in psychotherapy, isn't it? We, we reach back into the past and we try to change the meaning of what happened. We change the story. We change, well, when we change the story, we change the meaning. Right. So that's one way to do it. But it's a, that's hard. That's a really, really hard way. <laughs> um, so another way to do it is to change the future. So just like you would invest energy in exercising um, so that, you know, the, you're building a better, healthier you, 
uh, for the future, you can cultivate new experiences right now. You can invest your energy in cultivating a new experience for yourself that you've never had before and practice it. You know, like I had a colleague who, I have a colleague down the hall from me who studies gratitude and awe and positive emotions and how good they are for you. And I was like, yeah, 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 you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay, okay, okay. So I read all this evidence from him and there it is, black and white. And I think, all right, I'm going to try this myself. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to cultivate five minutes of awe every day. Just, I'm just going to try it every day, five minutes. And I started with easy things like the sky, the leaves, the birds, you know, um, flowers. I started easy. And then I started challenging myself a little more. And I'm like, that ugly, gnarly looking dandelion, which is poking its head through a crack in the sidewalk, that is the power of nature to be unconstrained by humans' attempts to constrain it. You know, so, but here's the thing. I, it became very automatic. I, I could, I practiced enough that I could switch into, I could construct awe at the drop of a hat when I needed it. Like, you know, if somebody cut me off on the highway or, you know, I was sitting in a faculty meeting and somebody was irritating me or, you know, whatever the little irritations of life are, I, and sometimes big irritations of life, I could give my nervous system a break for a minute and cultivate a moment of awe. What that does is it, it, it lets me feel like a speck for a, for a minute, you know? And if I'm a speck, then my problems are small. And so um, I can switch into that mode pretty easily now, but it took me a lot of practice um, just like driving a car takes a lot of practice or learning to play an instrument takes a lot of practice or learning a language takes a lot of practice, right? You can um, expose yourself to new ideas. You can travel. You can. You don't have to travel literally. You could travel by reading books. You could travel by watching movies. You can talk to people um, about their experiences. You can learn emotion words or, or mental state words in other languages, which is another way of expanding um, your the opportunities to create new experiences for yourself. There are many things that you can do. And when you invest the time to do these things, um, you are, every new thing that you learn, your brain has um, available to construct differently, make different predictions and make different constructions in the future. So the way to think about it is that at every moment of your life, you are cultivating the future you, <laughs> right? You're always cultivating a past that will be used to construct who you are in the future, which is a very Buddhist idea. And even deconstructing, you know, just there are ways that you can deconstruct your experience. That's what mindfulness meditation ultimately is for. It's to try to get as close as you can to like to turn the story off, turn the meaning making off, and just to experience the flow of sensations. And again, it it's I think it sounds preposterous to anybody who's never tried it, but for people who've practiced it, it's very, very powerful technique to use, to have in your arsenal of things to do. Like I um about a year, year and a little bit, I guess a year, almost a year and a half ago now, I had open open back surgery and um 
so I had, you know, I had a spinal fusion and some other assorted, you know, things that had to be done. And, uh, you know, it was very painful. Um, but I was aware of research on mindfulness meditation and pain management. And um, there was this fantastic work um, by a colleague of mine. Um, and uh, I used that technique. I actually used mindfulness meditation when I was most in pain. Um, you know, the, when you're really in pain, the, 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 um, you know, the, the tendency is to want to distract yourself from the pain. But if you actually focus in right, focus your attention right on it and start to pick it apart, you know, so that you can separate distress from the discomfort and just really hang, you can focus on the discomfort. When you do that, the distress kind of melts away and it reduces the intensity of the pain. Now, you know, it's, it's not the same as taking an opioid, obviously, <laughs> but, um, but it is effective, and actually, research shows that um, that people are less likely to become opiate dependent um, if they use mindfulness um, to manage their pain. So, I guess the point here is that these um, these are not like Jedi mind tricks. You know, the, these are these are skills you have to practice, and um, and they work. And there's evidence that they work, and people's experience is that they work. Um, in the same way, if you uh, ruminate and you, you know, you're basically what you're doing when you're ruminating is you're strengthening those connections, um, and that will make it harder for you later to to try to turn them off. Right. There's in in your book though. In describing how the brain works and and how it relies on the past to try to be more efficient, you know, so it doesn't use up as many of the body's resources. You talk about new learning, putting yourself in a situation that is unfamiliar, that the brain does doesn't have any prior experience with, actually does use up. It does require. It's just like exercise. I think about it as ac just like exercise. So. Your brain's main job, really, its most important job is efficiently regulating the systems of your body in a metabolically efficient way. I mean, like, I, I know it doesn't feel that way to us. That's not how we experience ourselves. Um, but that's, that's actually what's happening. And so the most expensive things for your brain are moving your body, like walking, running, exercising, right? and um, learning something new. Turns out learning something new, that's expensive. And actually, uncertainty, persistent uncertainty, where, you know, your brain can't predict very well what's going to happen next. That's also exhausting in the long run. So for example, you know, with, um, you know, co the COVID pandemic, you, you would, you read all these articles about how you know, we're all exhausted because our fight and flight circuits are like overworked or whatever, you know, that's a very, there's a lot to say about that. But um, maybe for some people who are living with immediate threat, that, that immediate threat is exhausting them. But for many people, 
It's just the persistent uncertainty that's exhausting them. Not just, but I mean, it's exhausting, but there's persistent uncertainty. And there was persistent uncertainty before COVID. There was persistent uncertainty because of climate change, because of economic um, upheavals, because um, of the political situation, that because of the casual brutality of everyday life, just how people in, you know, it seems like to talk to each other. Like, it's, you know, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, bitch. And you're like, is that like, hi, honey? Or is that I'm going to punch you in the face? You know, like, what is that? You know, there's, there's all this uncertainty. And then on top of that, we have, you know, a pandemic and all the uncertainty, not just about getting sick, but also is the person I'm talking to vaccinated? Are they not vaccinated? Do they think vaccination's okay? Are they going to go ballistic if they, you know, if I ask them to put a mask on? I mean, just like, you know, there's tremendous uncertainty. And so these things, are, these are all very expensive um, things, moving your body, uncertainty, and learning something new. So learning something new is expensive metabolically, but it's like, it's like making an investment in a better, healthier you, just like exercising is making an investment. That's the way, um, and I would describe it. And I would say, you know, having control over your emotional life is not just putting the brakes on, um, you know, you want to yell at your boss, but it's ill-advised, you know, you want to, you know, lash out at someone, but it's, you know, not a good idea. You know, like putting the brakes on this kind of like prepotent response, this, auto, this response that's kind of automatic, you know, for you, that's really taxing. So another way to do things, or maybe an additional way, is to invest the energy when you've got it. You know, when you have the spoons, use them. And then what you're doing is you're you're expanding a, the repertoire, you know, that you can use. Your brain will now have a larger repertoire that it can use automatically in the future. And so the it's a favor that you're doing to your future self for your future self. I so appreciate you saying that because one of the ways I approach teaching meditation is I start right out and just saying, let's deal with this myth that you're going to sit and spend five or 10 minutes and experience calm. When people start to meditate, they, they have to spend a lot of time sitting with the physical discomfort of realizing how busy their minds are, all the worrisome thoughts, regrets about the past, concerns about the future. So really, really appreciate you saying that because they feel like this is too much for my brain or this is this is exhausting this is frustrating yeah. this is and so i think people need a lot of support through that there is the experience of incredible calm and peace and there but that is a lot later yeah but you wouldn't right but you wouldn't go to another country and expect just to be able to speak the language after being there for a day or two and you wouldn't necessarily you know if you've never played piano or guitar you wouldn't necessarily pick it up and after strumming a bit on your guitar for like a few minutes be able to play you know like uh, Manuel Barueca or whatever you know you wouldn't be able to, uh, uh, you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to play piano like Mozart I mean like the point is that um, it's a skill and I think the thing that's really surprising for people I know it was really surprising for me 
is just how uncomfortable it is to be, you know, we would say with your own thoughts, but really what we're saying is when you let your mind, when your brain is unconstrained by the context as much as it can be, as much as you can let it be, boy, it can careen off into some, you know, places you don't want it to go. And it's the the temptation, right, is to, again, just like with pain, the temptation is to distract yourself rather than let yourself aim right for it and, and sort of pick it apart. And I think, you know, oftentimes we think when something feels bad, it means that something is wrong. But sometimes when something feels bad, it's because we're doing something hard. I had one client who I was telling her, when you're feeling really, really anxious, you could just remember physiologically, it's the same as excitement and just tell yourself, I'm so excited to do this presentation in my class. I'm, it, it's, it's a way of like, in some ways she was practicing making a different meaning. Yes, exactly. She was recategorizing or bringing different knowledge to bear to to make sense of those sensations. And that's exactly right. And here's the really cool thing. There's a ton of research which shows that people can actually learn to do this. And it conquers test anxiety. And they can finish courses, college courses, graduate from college. It can change the earning potential the trajectory of their earning potential for their whole lives if they learn to do this, right? Like I watched um, when my daughter was, I think I, I talk about this and how motions are made. My daughter was 12 years old and she was testing for a black belt in karate with these hulking, you know, she was this tiny little five foot thing. And there are these like hulking adolescent boys who were like six feet tall. I mean, you know, just huge. And her sensei is a 10th degree black belt. Like this guy could literally break a board by looking at it. You know, like he was just really, and what does he say to my daughter? He says, he doesn't say, don't be scared. He doesn't say calm down because she needs that arousal to do what she's going to have to do. No, he says, get your butterflies flying in formation. And so she did. And I thought that is the best recategorization I have heard of, you know, and butterflies became like a symbol for her in adolescence. Um, uh, you know, so whenever she was doing something really hard. Um, and I think there's a lesson in, the, in there for, for all of us. I will say, and this is something I said in my TED Talk, and I, I definitely say it in, in um, seven and a half lessons. You know, um, what this means is that we have control, more control over our emotional lives than we realize. And of course, we, we're never going to have as much control as we want. And we're never going to be able to just snap our fingers and like change how we feel. It doesn't work that way. But the horizon of control is much bigger, much wider than you might imagine. And what you, your agency isn't just in the moment, right? Your agency is also whatever you're doing now has it has an implication for it changes the priors or the probabilities for how you will be um, in the future. And you have maybe not as much control over that as you would like, but you have more control over it probably than you know. Right, right. And again, I think that's one of the things that 
people can do in therapy is they can actually, if they stop and reflect on the patterns, they can start to see in what areas do they need to start practicing some different way of responding, you know, and um, <clears throat> I think that's really hugely helpful. All right, so I'm aware of the time and taking up a lot of your time. Um, I just have one other question, though, that I am dying to ask you because it's it's the um, sort of the the next wave of research that's being done on psychedelics and this, the whole idea of the way that emotions are made. It's you know your body's experience. It's just, you know your situation, the cues from that, and then your previous experience. But I'm just wondering, like, if you have a sense of how that works, because it's like the default mode network and kind of shutting that down. And but just because when you said that, it's super exciting. And I love the possibility here that everybody can break bad habits and patterns. If you put the time and the effort into it, it is frustrating to begin. It's like, like you said, it's just like exercising, we could all be marathon runners if we we're willing to. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure I could not be a marathon. <laughs> I can run faster. I mean, okay, like, I you could, could run, run a little faster. I could run faster, and I could probably run longer. Um, well, I mean, right now, you know, with my back, I can't run at all. But I, I, but, but my point is that I don't know that I would ever be a marathon runner. But I could definitely run longer, and I could run faster, and my my joints wouldn't hurt as much, and my right. So everybody can do things a little with a little more a little more investment you know, now it has a payoff later. There, there are a lot, we do, we do this all. That's how we learn to talk. It's how we learn to drive. It's, it's how we learn, you know, to cook or to paint or to do whatever, you know, whatever we do. I mean, even this, if you listen to me, I'm sure maybe it's true for you too, but I mean, if you listen to me five years ago, do a podcast, you listen to me now. No. It's there's a little bit of I hope geez there's a little bit of difference with the number of podcasts you know I've done, so I think, um, I think it's just a, a rule that we're very familiar that we're very very familiar with. Well, what's um, interesting is remember when you started out by saying you were studying psychology and you were sort of interested in the self, and I think you referenced sort of like why people end up sort of being frustrated and not. This is fascinating because. This is, this is really what you're helping people understand. If you're frustrated and you're not happy with the way your emotions you're experiencing in different situations, you're always, if you're angry, you tend to be angry a lot. But yeah, like you don't, in that moment, maybe you don't feel agency. But if you're repeatedly feeling hijacked and you're not hijacked, but that's the experience. If you have that experience, the reality is you do not need to be hijacked. It doesn't have to happen like that. You can get. Yeah. On top of that. And you're not really being hijacked. That's the thing. It's not like there's a little lizard in your brain hijacking you. It just feels that way. I mean, it really does feel that way, but that really is not what's happening to you. Um, and I, I guess so with, with psychedelics, let me just say, I don't think anybody knows how they work. I mean, like I, really no scientist can tell you right now why they have the effects they have. But I do think that there are some clues. And for me, the clues are the following. The default mode network, it, has, it goes by many names, this network, okay? <laughs> it, 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 and this is something that I explain, I, I, you know, to some extent in, in how emotions are made and, and 
in my scientific papers, there's there are much there are much more detailed explanations. But the, your default mode network, it, it, in combination with your hippocampus and and um, you know your cerebellum, um, are you could think of them. This is a gross oversimplification, but you can think of them as the origin of the predictions, meaning when your brain is, you know, whatever, basically, if you were to stop time, your brain is, your brain has some kind of representation of what's going on in the world and what's going on in your body. And because of heavy and learning, right, because of the statistical learning that your brain has done throughout its whole life, it's making a set of predictions about what's going to happen next. Those predictions go by many names. Mm -hmm. Memory. You don't have a, a, an awareness of remembering, but basically your brain is reassembling a set of possible futures based on the present, what it believes to be the present moment. We call that remembering. We call that perceptual inference. We call that simulation. We call that conceptualization. We call that categorization. I mean, we, we have a lot of names for it. We call it decision-making. <laughs> we call it, I mean, there's a lot of names for it, but it's really the same process. And the default mode network is very, very important um, piece of that. Now, of that process. Now, um, every prediction starts as a set of signals to change the internal state of your body every set of predictions begins that way and to prepare motor movements like for you to move your body and the literal copies of those signals are sent to all of the sensory systems in your brain to prepare you to experience the world in a particular way based on those movements that your brain is preparing your body to make which is just you know seems preposterous and seems kind of ass backwards from the way we experience things. Your brain constructs experience as if experience happens first and then you react to things in the world and then you act. But actually in the brain, action preparation comes first right. based on heavy and learning. So that's an important thing to realize. Um, and what happens is your brain is constructing a set of or population of possible futures and then the sense data from your body and the sense data from your from the world help to select which of those futures you will actually experience. And then also you have an attentional system inside your brain, your frontoparietal uh, control network, your salient network, and so on, that helps to select the basically the set of memories, the set of predictions that will create your create the movements and the and the mental features that become your experience in the next moment. So when you go to sleep, some of that selection, some of those selection factors are relaxed because your attentional system is um is relaxed um and uh it your um attention to exteroceptive signals from the world, sights, sounds, smells diminished because it looks like the volume is being turned down. And that is, you could think about that as maybe why 
you dream, you can dream pretty funky things, right? Like things that there are, there are experiences you have, things you do in your dreams that you can't do in the real world. Why? Because they're selected out, <laughs> right? They're never, they never can happen because they're selected out. But when those selection pressures are relaxed, you can have those experiences. But not all the selection pressures are relaxed because your brain is still attached to your body. Your body is still sending sense data back to your brain, even when you sleep. And so those signals from body to brain are also selection pressures for certain predictions, certain memories. So those are always there. So I think, well, maybe what's happening with psilocybin and ketamine and so on is that those constraints are relaxed. That is, you you feel like you're having an out-of-body experience because, or that you're disconnected from yourself in a sense, because you kind of are, because the the body is no longer constraining or entraining the brain as much as it does right now, like in waking life. And, um, and so that means what? It means that any random exteroceptive cue can send your brain careening off into associations that uh, it's not controlling very well which is probably why you need a guide to be that external selection pressure to make sure you don't careen off into bad associations and or, or harmful associations, right? And to keep you in a, a part of the brain state space where it's everything is, is, you know, copacetic. But that is complete, Elizabeth, complete speculation on my part, total guess, and I could be totally wrong. Um. I mean, in, in terms of like what, what psychedelics do and why they're curative. I think we know partially that they, they, they allow brains to have experiences, to learn um, experiences that, that, that are not possible to have otherwise. And that's what makes them curative. But how the brain gets into that, into those states, I don't think anybody really knows the answer just yet. That what I gave you is my, sort of half-baked inferences based on what I know. Well, it's funny because uh, before we wrap up, I, I did want to check with you and see if there's anything in the works. If, <laughs> if you want to give us a sneak preview of your next book or anything that you're kind of diving into these days. And that's, you know, that makes me think that there, you talk about it in, in the books, in your writing, you talk about how the brain chooses i mean it kind of has to screen some things out and it relies on on, on the past to be efficient you, you say we'd be we'd go crazy if we felt everything all day long i mean we don't need to feel our toes and our shoes we don't you don't necessarily need to feel your stomach digesting food and unless there's a problem there that you know gets exactly your attention. yeah so this whole idea that i mean i kind of think like okay somebody's on this you know controlled trip but basically they, they are turned like the any sort of helpful screening is like turned off. That's what frightens me a little bit about. It. I'm very curious about it, but that's the part where I think people think, oh, this could go bad. And it could, and it can, and it does sometimes. And so the, but the point is that you're, it's like, um, it's like giving yourself, it's like, 
you know, giving your brain, it's like giving, the brain is giving itself teaching signals on steroids. You know, like when you learn a new language or you cultivate a new experience or you learn new skill, what you're doing is you're giving yourself teaching signals. Your brain wires itself to the world. And so when you, you cultivate new experiences, you cultivate new experiences, you're, these are a set of teaching signals to, to essentially help your brain wire what your you know your brain is wiring itself basically a little bit differently um and so that's what psychedelics do um you know but like with great um intensity <laughs> i would say and and so it the potential is very there's a there's great potential for benefit um but it requires great care just like any learning any skill, you know, when you learn to drive a car, there's great benefit there, but there's also, you know, great danger if you're not careful. Um, same thing, you know, when you are learning to cook or you're learning, you know, whenever you're using an instrument that could potentially um, harm you. Right. Right. It just backs up what you say, too. It's like set and setting, you know, whatever previous knowledge you have of what it's been like for other people will have an effect on how you how you have that experience so preparing the set the setting all of that is so so important well i just thought i'd put a little bug in your ear in case you get the urge to um dive into that because i think there's going to be a lot of interest when people see that it it can be when done right and you know it's i just i just know that especially for people with end of life anxiety, you know, facing real, it's, it can really be um, a powerful, helpful experience with, with those, with that caution taken. Absolutely. So, so another question I had for you was about whether or not emotions get stored in the body and, and whether or not this whole idea that if they're not discharged, they get stored as like a body memory. Yeah. So here's the thing. There are no emotions in your body. Um, emotion, exactly. They're in your brain. Exactly. You don't see in your eyes. You see in your brain. You don't hear in your ear. You hear in your brain. Pinch your skin. You're not feeling that in your skin. You're actually feeling it in your brain, right? Everything you, every sensation you have, every experience you have is in your brain. So emotions um, are not trapped in your body. They are constructed by your brain, right? So your, your body doesn't keep the score. Your brain keeps the score and your body is the scorecard. Your, bo your body is um, responding, if you will, to the instructions from your brain. And it's your brain that keeps the score. So are there physical consequences um, from prolonged adversity? Yes, there are. But it's not because your body is keeping score. It's because your brain is. So it's and not in the tissues. It's not in the tissues. It's in your brain. Right? It's in your brain. If... Um, if you um, if you have um, frequent releases of cortisol, first of all, cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a glucocorticoid that gets 
uh, glucose into your bloodstream quickly because your brain thinks that you have something metabolically hard to do, like deal with ambiguity or uncertainty or learn something new. So when you get up in the morning, haul your ass out of bed, you're, you have high cortisol, you know, I mean, anytime, anytime. And so the most, you know, the best thing for a human is another human. The worst thing for a human is also another human. So we're constantly causing each other, you know, these, these like surges, gushes of cortisol. But when you have a gush of cortisol, it's not because your adrenal glands remembered something. It's because your brain instructed your adrenal glands to do it. This is really, really, really important. Emotions are not held in your body. They're in your brain. Okay. So they're accessed and then accessing. They're not accessed. They're constructed. They're constructed. They're created. They're, they're reconstructed. Made. No, they're constructed. Okay, your they're brain, your emotions don't happen to you. They are made by you mm -hmm. automatically without your awareness. They're made. They're always made in the moment. Mm -hmm. They're always made. And so what's happening here is that when you encounter a cue or a pattern, your brain is making, it's remembering and it's making emotion when you in fact, right? It's making anxiety when in fact you could make determination or enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. So you can change that, but you're not changing it by doing anything to your body. You're changing it by learning something new so that you can make different meaning out of those physical signals and, and ultimately change those signals. Is there anything you are working on now or anything you want to have other people and people can look you up online? Um, people can email you. I did. And you will get a sign of how many emails you get because <laughs> you now have to auto generate. A, I'm so sorry that I get so many emails. So I know firsthand that you get flooded with emails, but is there anything? Um, that you're kind of working on now or just sort of are you in a you're busy i know doing podcast interviews and talking oh i still run a lab so i i co-direct a lab uh with uh karen quigley who is a psychophysiologist and we have about 25 full-time members of our lab graduate students postdocs um full-time researchers and then you know, pre-COVID, we had about 100 undergraduates working in the lab at any given semester. Now it's considerably less, but we're sort of ramping back up. Um, so um, I'm still running the lab and I'm in the process of writing two books. And, um, and then, of course, we just have all the research that we're doing. I think research-wise, the, the most exciting thing that I think we're doing is we are studying um mood like affective feelings feeling pleasant unpleasant feeling calm feeling worked up um feeling comfortable feeling uncomfortable these are feelings that are they're with you always they they arise from the your brain's regulation of your body so they're not emotions they're they're states features of consciousness that are always with you and we think of them as sort of a barometer of your metabolic state. So we're really interested in um, depression, for example, and anxiety as um, metabolic, just like fundamental, like mood, they're mood related symptoms um, of a metabolic, of metabolic dysfunction. And 
um, that I think um, is, you know, a, a sort of problematic energy regulation. Um, that's a bit of an epiphany, I would say, um, to for for me personally and for my family, um, but also it it helps a lot of people to understand that their mood is linked to their physical state, um, and that depression is a mood disorder, but it's also uh, a disorder of of immune function, and fundamentally, it's a mis it's a disorder of metabolism. Um, and and metabolism and, and immunologic function are are strongly linked um, to to one another. So we're really interested in that um, in in the lab. And the other thing that we study we're studying too is we're using very powerful brain imaging um, techniques, very powerful magnets, um, sort of like seven times. You know, it's, it's an order magnitude seven orders of magnitude more powerful than the standard or i guess maybe it's now two and a half i guess because people now use three tesla we're using a seven tesla magnet so um but what that means is that we can look into the subcortical regions of the brain the brain stem almost really almost like um of humans living breathing humans almost like an x-ray and um what this reveals to us is that many of the, you know, areas of the brain that people think of as being fight or flight circuits and so on are nothing of the sort. Really what they are, are just circuits for the brain's regulation of the body. Always, not certainly during fight and flight, but also during uh, memory and just when you're looking at pictures and um, just when you're preparing to um, have a chat with someone and, you know, just basically these um, in studies, you know, previously they would, you would try to drive these um, circuits really hard so that you could study them. And an easy way to do that is to um, threaten an animal or a human, you know, non-human animal or a human animal, you know, you threaten them in some way and then you drive these systems really hard and then you can study them a little more easily but it turns out that these circuits are engaged you know when you're remembering a phone number like they're they're engaged all the time because what they are for fundamentally is is the coordination and regulation of the body during threat but also you know at other times and that is I think very 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 interesting, um, uh, and hopefully will um, you know provide another course correction to the field that we really need. Absolutely. So are the two books you're working on now kind of related to some of those? No, one of the books I'm working on is an evolutionary and developmental neuroscience story um, uh, about the human brain. So it's basically, um, it's designed to put a lot more, bring a lot more, um, it's a, it's a science book. It's for scientists. So it's an inward facing book to the field. Um, and it's, um, it's really to bring, you know, research that's highly siloed, like in embryology, for example, um, 
two scientists and maybe eventually I'll write a more detailed um, version for the public. Um, You know, seven and a half lessons about the brain is not meant to be a standard popular science book. It's meant to be a set of essays that give you some tidbits of neuroscience um, woven into an essay that will leave you thinking about big topics, you know, like what does it mean to be human? What kind of a human do you want to be um, without really telling you what to do? And so they're, it's meant to be read, you know, on the subway or on the beach or in the bathtub. It's not meant to be, you know, a standard three or 400 page um, uh, book with all of the scientific details. I mean, there are scientific details there and there there's an appendix with more scientific details and there's a website with even more scientific details. <laughs> but, um, but some of the details are not there um, by design. And, and so um, I, now I'm working on the sort of the bigger version um, first for the scientists um, and then um, maybe, maybe in the future, a popular science book. The other thing though that I'm working on is it's maybe a little ambitious to call it a book. It's right now just a series of papers, but eventually it will be a book uh, I think. And that is, um, you know, there's a whole field called philosophy of science. Philosophy of science is really about what kind of experiences count as observations? What kind of observations count as evidence for or against a belief? And can evidence ever really disconfirm a belief or an idea? Um, So how do you reason about, how do you know what's true? What counts as knowledge for you? How did you, can you ever disconfirm your beliefs? Can, Can you ever observe anything that is free from your beliefs? So these are the kinds of questions that philosophers of science um, ask themselves, but you know what? These are all questions about meaning making. And they're questions that as a therapist that you always are asking with your clients. Right. And so they're not, you know, philosophy is not just all this abstract mumbo jumbo. It's actually a set of ideas for living your best life. Um, to some extent, like I think philosophy is sort of the original self-help, you know, (laughs) Um, and so well, the Buddha, the Buddha was, I mean, yeah. he's left a, a path you can take to. Yeah, exactly. So, so I'd like to, um, yeah. you know, I'd like to, I'd like to make some of those ideas available to people. Um, um, I probably will title it, you know, um, this is not a expletive self-help book, you know, like you don't need a self, the people don't need help. What they need is a set of guidelines. You know, they don't need rules. They just need a set of like ideas that they can work with, you know, like a tools, a set of tools, if you will. New and information. Yeah. That could be referenced instead of the old information that yeah. we keep reusing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, there there's a book in there, I think. And I'm, so I'm just, you know, I'm jotting down notes now. Um, but, um, John Dunn notes writing a couple papers and then we'll see where it goes in your spare time <laughs> when you're not in the lab or doing interviews and trying to answer some of those emails. It's a lot. It's a lot. Well, I'm great. I'm grateful for the opportunity. So thank you. No, it's really is. I mean, you really are like a maverick because it's hard to go out there and, you know, 
dispel some of these yeah. long held beliefs. And it's a huge service you do all of us. Well, thanks. Awesome. Thank, you. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe we'll get together again when one of those other books comes out. That would be great. <laughs> that would be great.